Fill out a Connect card, uh, take it to the Welcome Center. We have a gift for you. We're just glad that you're here worshiping with us on what is the first Sunday of Advent. You might not be familiar with that term. Uh, the church has a year. It's not the same year as we celebrate as uh, Americans from January to December. The church year begins with a season we call Advent. So there's Advent, which is a time of anticipation. Advent actually means arrival. You know, you're waiting for something. The advent. In the Old Testament, there's only, there's over 300 prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. So the advent is the arrival of what we know as Christmas, which is the second season of the church year. Christmas is a wonderful time that we all celebrate. After Christmas, we have Epiphany. From Epiphany, we go into the season of Lent, 40 days until Easter. We celebrate Easter. 50 days later, there's the season of Pentecost. And then we go into several months of what we call ordinary time. The church year, the church rhythm is important because it helps us to focus on every single aspect of the Word of God and the life of Christ. So it's important for us to realize that there are times in our life that God hasn't quite interrupted or invaded, and maybe you're in a situation right now that you've been praying for God to send you a miracle. You've been praying for God to answer your prayer, and you haven't quite seen it yet. You're in that Advent season. But originally, as I mentioned, there were hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the arrival of what was called the Messiah. Every Jew and many Gentiles, and Gentiles would be defined as non-Jews, were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, promised through the Hebrew Scripture, Genesis to Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. And God embedded all sorts of details of the Messiah's work, the Messiah, His Son, and how his son would uh, come and would bring salvation to the world. Not political salvation, not a overthrow of the Roman government, but his kingdom through the shed blood of Jesus, through the empty tomb, that we might have salvation, that we might be birthed from darkness into light, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Now, it's important to remember that even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago, as he ascended back into heaven, he said, wait, I'm coming again. The trumpet shall sound. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those of you that are on the earth who know me will be caught up in the air and will meet me. That's called the second coming of the Lord. And friends, that is our blessed hope. So Advent helps us remember that God keeps his promises in the first coming of Christ, but it also helps us to remember that someday Jesus will come again. And this time it will be a governmental overthrow. For a thousand years during the millennial time, Jesus will rule and reign. All wrongs will be made right. Justice will prevail. Friends, don't lose sight of the blessed hope of Jesus.
So we've got the first coming of Christ. We've got the second coming of Christ. But as I said, maybe right now you need Christ to come into your life. And I want you to know that he wants to meet your need. Whether you need hope, whether you need peace, whether you need joy, whether you need love, whatever it is you need, Jesus is here for you. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a series called Anticipating the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there's some very general statements that become very specific toward the end of the Old Testament. We'll be in the book of Isaiah quite a bit today because the prophecies become more and more specific. And I want to look at four different aspects of the Messiah over the next month or the next four weeks. Today we're going to look at the person of the Messiah. Who is he? Next week we'll look at the practice of the Messiah and then the purpose of the Messiah and then the passion of the Messiah. So that's where we're going. These are going to be uh, uh, filled with a lot of scriptures. I don't have them all on the overhead projector or the overhead screen. Uh, so if you're taking notes, uh, you'll just need to look those up later. There's a lot of, this is going to be more of a Bible study than it is probably an inspirational message. But in the next 30, 35 minutes, we will culminate with some very practical application. So let's pray before we look into the Word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you promised to send a Messiah, and you did. And he was born of a virgin. His name was Jesus. And he saved his people from their sin. And thank you that we also have a promise that you're going to come back. You're going to rule and reign with righteousness. And we look forward to that blessed hope of the second coming. But we also realize in between those two comings, we live in a real world full of real sorrow and real pain. And God, there are many people here today who need the hope of knowing that Jesus is going to come. They're in an Advent season, a waiting season. But I pray you'll give them strength, that you'll encourage them today through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't have to tell you, we live in desperate times. Man, if you read a newspaper this week, if you turned on the television this week, you know we live in desperate times. But that's nothing new. The people that were on the earth during the Advent season before Jesus was born also lived in desperate times. In fact, if you think about it, go back to Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve. Here they are in this beautiful garden. Everything is great until they sin. And because of their disobedience to God, the darkness of sin, not only descended upon them as individuals, but descended upon the earth. So ever since the original sin, Adam... And all of us, because the Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we have surrendered his rule over the earth to the evil one. Now, a lot of people think, well, who's really in charge today? Well, if you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says your steps are ordered of the Lord. 
No matter what happens in your life, it will work together for good. That's what the scripture says. But as far as the earth is concerned, Satan is the ruler. That's not my opinion, that's scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Jesus on multiple occasions, particularly in the gospel of John, calls Satan the ruler of this world. John reminded his readers that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. He said, we know that we are children of God, but the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's why we live in desperate times, because we've surrendered control of this world, not God's kingdom, but this kingdom to Satan. And you can trace the devastation of Satan's rule all throughout humankind. Sin and death have reigned from, as I said, the time of Adam. But God promised us deliverance. We receive spiritual deliverance because of the cross and the empty tomb. We will receive physical deliverance when he comes back the second time. It's very clear in the scripture in Genesis chapter 3. The word says, I will put enmity between you. Now he's talking there to Satan, the serpent. Enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's very clear there. The seed, S-E-E-D, is singular in reference and it is to a particular person. And that person is the Messiah. Now that person is Jesus. And I'll show you that in a few moments as we trace the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament. But from that moment on, as soon as Satan became aware that there was going to be this seed, Jesus, man, he has worked tirelessly to prevent the arrival of that promised destroyer. Not only in the world, but in your life and my life. You know the closer you get to God, the harder Satan works to separate you from God. It's a spiritual battle we're in. And of course, everyone's got a solution they got a new book. They've got a new key to victorious living. Everyone's got a solution. Some people think if we elect the right leaders, things are going to get better. Or if we just have the, the right economy, things will get better. We all tend to have solutions. We want to bring deliverance to ourselves. We want to bring deliverance to our families. We want to deliver our church. We want to deliver our society. But you know something? That's not our job to do. Yesterday, I read a devotional by Sarah Young. Some of you know who Sarah Young is. She's written Jesus Calling in many other volumes. This was her devotional from yesterday. Problems are a part of life. They are inescapably woven into the very fabric of this fallen world. You tend to go into problem-solving mode all too readily acting as if you have the capacity to fix everything. This is a habitual response, so automatic that it bypasses your conscience thinking. Not only does this habit frustrate you, it also distances you from me. 
Do not let fixing things be your top priority. You are ever so limited in your capacity to correct all that is wrong in this world around you. Don't weigh yourself down with responsibilities that are not your own. Instead, make your relationship with me your primary concern. Isn't that good? Eve thought deliverance would come through her firstborn, Cain. <laughs> Whoops, <laughs> didn't work that way, did it? You know, and as the prophecies became more and more specific, Satan's tactics became more focused. Sin and darkness descended. Mankind was in desperate need of light. Mankind awaited this promise of the Deliverer, the Messiah. And they were given that hope. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 2, we read this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You might be living in a land of darkness right now, but I want you to know, light through a relationship with Jesus can become the focus of your life and can become your hope. That prophecy of Isaiah 9-2 is fulfilled in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 4, but when the set time had fully come, it's always about God's timing, never about our timing, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, but to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Praise the Lord. Man, the Jews looked for this Messiah for thousands of years. This glorious hope was passed from one generation to another generation. And they were looking for a deliverer, but they were looking for a political deliverer. They were looking for a king who would not only deliver them, but rule the entire world. And that has not happened yet, but that will happen when Christ comes the second time. At the time of Christ's first coming, we got to remember, God had not spoken for about 400 years. There's about 400 years of silence between the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. So what did the Jews do? They relied upon the Hebrew scriptures that had already been written. And in the midst of this oppressive Roman rule, man, as they relied upon those promises or those what we would call prophecies for deliverance, it gave them hope. Some of them did kind of what I would call divine math, just like we have a tendency to do now. We tend to think, oh, we can interpret what's happening in the Middle East, and we can overlay it on the Scriptures, and we can figure out God's time plan. I've told you before, when I was a kid, an evangelist came and had our whole church convinced that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, because he had this wonderful formula that figured out to be the number 666, you know? But that's not really new either. In fact, there was some of that going on back in the Old Testament. The math of Daniel's 70 weeks, followed by this symbolism of the image playing out in history. But they knew that someday, in God's time, 
the person of the Messiah would appear. But who is this person? And that's what we want to explore today. That's what we want to take a look at. There are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. We're not going to We're not going to look at all of them. We're not even going to look at a tenth of them. But I want you to understand that, in fact, upon his arrival as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, Jesus himself fulfilled those prophecies. And, in fact, Jesus himself stated that he had fulfilled the prophecies and that he was the Messiah. You can check that out in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, 27 says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets that he, meaning Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all of scriptures. So Jesus himself went back to the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and said, look, they were all pointing to me. And I know there's some people that have minimized those fulfilled prophecies. You know, they've suggested, well, Christ was just a man who somehow orchestrated that to look like he was fulfilling them. But the fact is, a simple examination of those prophecies will dismantle that argument because most of the prophecies related to the things of the Messiah were outside the control of any individual person like his heritage. How can you control that? His place of birth, the reaction of the people, the mode of his death, the way that he was betrayed, his burial. Those are things were outside the control of a person. And besides, all those prophecies were written long before the birth of Jesus. And they came to pass long after the death of the prophets wrote those prophetic statements. Who is this Messiah? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A scripture we hear a lot at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to notice for a few moments the blending of humanity and deity. The scripture says, for unto us a child is born. That's humanity. A child was born. But it also says, a son was given because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is God's only begotten son. So the child born represents the humanity. The son given represents his deity. And man, there's a number of passages that highlight both this idea of humanity and deity. And it's important for us to grasp that as we study the Messiah. Man, the prophecies made clear the Messiah would be completely human. Prophecies of his heritage began broad and narrow and then finally focused in on a specific family. Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. There's the humanity part. And will call him Emmanuel. That means God with us. That's the deity part. And that was fulfilled as we read earlier in the book of Galatians. And all through the Old Testament, we've got so many prophecies recording about the person of the Messiah. As you study the genealogy of Jesus, mainly in Matthew, you will see how those prophecies have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to, to look into this in detail, but let me just share with you a few of those prophecies. It says the Messiah would be from the seed of Abraham. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's the seed of Abraham. He's the son of Isaac. He's the son of Jacob. He's from the lion or from the tribe of the lion of Judah. He is from the line of Jesse. It says he's from the house of David. There's six various specific prophecies about the person of the Messiah. The seed of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse, and the house of David that are all fulfilled if you read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Paul, man, Paul stated this very clearly in Romans. Paul's talking about himself and he says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. I'm called as an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, Old Testament, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. And then Paul just identifies the Messiah Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. So the Word became flesh, humanity, and He dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the deity part. John says, full of grace and full of truth. So we can say, well, okay, He's one of us. We get that, but how is he different than any other prophet, any other great teacher? How can he help us? What can he do to deliver us from our darkness during this season of Advent? I want to look at that for a few minutes. And the first and most important thing is to realize that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Son of God, that, that deity part of it. See, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus has always been in existence. He's always existed with the Father. He's eternal. In the divine plan, Jesus took on humanity as a baby while retaining his deity so he could bring unity between God and God. And man, God with us, Emmanuel. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 7, the virgin will call his name Emmanuel, 
God is with us. He is the Son of God. He has always existed. And He is the Lord of all. If you're taking notes, Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. You know where Jesus is today? At the right hand of the Father. Until I make you enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's the Son of God. He's Emmanuel. He's our Lord. He's everlasting. Micah 5.2 says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus has always existed as God's Son. Psalm 2 talks a lot about that. Verses 11 and 12 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice and trembling. Do homage to the Son. The Messiah, Jesus, was the elect servant of God. Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I, God, have put my spirit on him, the Son. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Because as we read earlier, he's mighty God. He is mighty God. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He's eternal. He's everlasting. See, the Messiah was more than a man. When you think of the Messiah, don't just think of Jesus in human form who walked on this earth for 33 years. No, the Messiah was God himself arriving in flesh. This idea of humanity and deity prophesied in the Old Testament and clearly fulfilled in the New Testament. And in fact, the entire New Testament attests to that blending that blending of humanity and deity. And I just want to say, friends, any deviation from that truth, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, any deviation from that truth should be rejected immediately as heresy. Because Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. He always has been. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word. It's not talking about the Bible. Not talking about, you know, printed words on a page. It's a capital W. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has ever come into being. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. You and I need to have this attitude in ourselves, <laughs> that attitude that Christ Jesus had, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness 
of men. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, We do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He did that for you. He did that for me. And it's not just the preacher this morning. It's not just the scripture that says that Jesus was divine. He was God. He was totally deity. Jesus himself claimed that. John chapter 8, beginning with verse number 56 He's talking to some church leaders, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, Well, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So instead of embracing the truth that Jesus proclaimed, they picked up stones and started throwing at him. And it says Jesus actually hid himself, went out of the temple. Jesus was more concerned about the purpose of God than he was about his own agenda. He was the perfect son. He was obedient. Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In John 4, 34, we read, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus taught us that we need to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not our agenda, but God's agenda. The Messiah in the person of Jesus was totally righteous, without sin. Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jeremiah, Malachi, they all attest to the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, was totally righteous. And a scripture more familiar to us is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became sin for you and I on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't leave out those last two words. The only way you can become righteous in God is in Jesus, the Messiah. 1 Peter chapter 2 says he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all things just as we are, yet he's without sin. 
And remember, we read it earlier in Isaiah, that the people who walked in the darkness will see this great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. That too was fulfilled. You can write it down. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is the fulfillment of that prophecy. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I thought quite a bit about that this past week. Have there been times that I've been in a dark place and not recognized the light of Jesus doing some deep work in my life? I don't want to be guilty of not comprehending what God is doing because God is always at work in our life always working for us, always conforming us to his image. Whether we feel it or not, whether we see it or not, that's what Advent is all about, this season of anticipation where sometimes it hasn't yet been fulfilled, yet we've got to walk by faith that God is working in our hearts. He's working in our life. He's bringing light into our darkness. Probably one of the strongest statements that we'll find in the New Testament as to the identity of the Messiah, is found in Luke chapter 4, beginning of verse 17. It's a great story. Jesus finds himself in his hometown, Nazareth. And it's Saturday, which is the Sabbath. So what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. That's his tradition. That's what he was brought up to do on the Sabbath. And when he got to the synagogue, they said, why don't you read God's word today. And they handed him a scroll. Let's pick up the story, Luke 4. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down. And it says, all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's powerful. If you look at the life of Jesus, the Messiah, you'll see how he would come to tangibly illustrate the character of God himself. We sing about it in our worship today. The foundation of love. His grace. His compassion his wisdom, his truth, his light, his very character. All 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled when Jesus, who had always existed, yet came to earth and was born as a baby, wrapped himself in flesh as Emmanuel. The prophets longed for his coming. How about you? Are you longing for his coming? He's promised to come again, but maybe right now you're in a situation in your life that you're waiting for that answer to prayer.
And we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond? I want to leave you this morning with some ways that you can apply this lesson today as we walk through this coming week. I put all five of the applications on your program, or they're in version as well, and they're taken from the book of Peter. There's five ways that you and I can prepare. First of all, it says we need to prepare for action. What does that mean? It means that we need to fix our hope on the glory of Christ's second advent. Prepare our minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Fix our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. It says, do not be conformed to the old way of living. We can respond as obedient children, not to be conformed to our former lust, which were yours and mine in ignorance, but instead to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then the Bible says to be holy as he is holy. Like the holy one who has called us. We've got to watch our behavior. We need to be holy under the Lord. The fourth thing is to conduct ourselves with fear. Remembering what it costs to get here. See, the Bible says we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the scripture says that we need to love one another. Since we have in obedience to the truth purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren, we need to fervently love one another from our heart. I want you to stand with me, and I want us to read this scripture and I want you to think about these five areas that I've just mentioned. Prepare for action. Don't conform. Be holy. Reverently fear God and love one another. And I want to leave you with this application of how we should be living in this season of Advent. Begin with verse number 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert, that means preparing for action, and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here on earth in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. 
Now, verse 22. Now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word does endure. And Lord, we have looked into your word today, a lot of Old Testament and a lot of New Testament. And we see, Lord, that in a season of Advent, people are expecting the arrival of someone. Lord, many of us will be entertaining guests this coming Christmas season. And in anticipation, we're going to buy groceries and we're going to vacuum carpets and we're going to clean windows. God, I pray that spiritually, in anticipation of the coming of Jesus into our life, we will prepare. We'll take these five keys that Peter presents to be alert, to be holy, not to be conformed, to build a foundation of love in our homes, in our relationships. Lord, I thank you that you came as a baby, and I thank you you're going to come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're going to make everything right. There is a second coming, and we're, we're looking forward to that. That is our blessed hope. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that each of us will look forward to the arrival of that answer to prayer that we need, that miracle that we need, that healing, that restoration. We thank you, Jesus, that our hope is found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray today. Amen. And amen.